This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Good morning. Talking Point turns to crime this week and asks some uncomfortable questions. Does the middle class establishment tolerate drug crime because it hurts only the poor? Are the assassins born evil or made evil by circumstance? And is it time to legalise drugs and eliminate the business of drug dealing overnight? How to solve drug crime. That's our talking point this morning. And in studio, Nicola Talent is the investigations editor with The Sunday World. Ivana Batchik is a Labour Party senator and professor in criminal law at Trinity College. Jared Casey is professor emeritus in philosophy at UCD. And on the line is Sean Lynch, former detective and Fianna Fáil County Councillor and Deputy Mayor for Limerick City. And he's also chairman of the Joint Policing Committee for Limerick City and County. Um, look, Sean, you faced all this before in Limerick, both from a policing angle and a political one. How did you solve uh, the crime gang problem in Limerick? Uh, good morning. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Um, yes, we did. Is We have actually very similar, I may add, to what's happening in Dublin at the moment. But uh, what we did, we, we identified the culprits and their associates and we targeted those individuals. We had surveillance 24 hours a day on them. We had high visibility ability, um, both uniform and otherwise, and we had overt and covert surveillance, and more or less old-fashioned police work. You know, we, we based a lot of our evidence on intelligence that we had already on some of these main players. You know, but one thing that we did, and it's something that we always got from our superior officers who had that amount of experience, is that we would enforce all laws available to us in like Road Traffic Act. You know, a lot of these people are driving high-powered vehicles, but has anyone actually stopped them and demanded their documents to see if they have them? And if they have not, prosecute them. Likewise, Misuse of Drugs Act. Search and stop, you have the power. If they have a substance, no matter how minute it is, you have power to bring them in, search, um, take that bit of evidence, get it analysed, and if it is a controlled substance, prosecute also, a lot of these people were very much into their horses. Use that act, the Control of Horses Act. They don't like their horses being taken. I'm sure Dublin is similar in relation to the boroughs. They may not be allowed to keep horses within a certain distance. Now, we enforced all those um, acts. And also, any warrants outstanding, mm. you know, go after them. That what it was doing was putting pressure. It was bringing them before the courts. It was an opportunity for other guards to see who these main players were. We were securing convictions, and especially I've seen it maybe in the recent past where people weren't prosecuting them on the failing to appear on a bench warrant. That is very important because down the road, when they commit serious crime and you have them in court and you want to object to their bail, well, that's a ground because you have evidence to support the fact that they have failed to appear on a previous warrant. So all these things were very important. And even a threat and obstruction, you know, you're building profiles, you're, you're, you're recording the convictions, you're building a dossier, and basically just collating their every move. And we, we, it's putting pressure on them. And one thing we found, that once the heat came on these individuals, people just didn't want to be associated with them. Um, in Owen Harris's column in the Sunday Independent, he uh, described that process and called it disruptive internment. Correct. And Correct. then he said, why not go the whole way? Would you support actual internment? No, I wouldn't. Why I would not? not? 
you know, the rule of law, I think, is very important, and no matter what we do, and we have to respect the human rights of the individual. I know maybe people will knock me for that, but we have to, you know, I don't think we can sustain it. You know, the guards have demonstrated time and time again they are well able to do the job if they're given the resources. So I think making suggestions like that, I think, are off the wall. Um, Nicola Talent, how much of this is to do with money? Are the Gardaí in Dublin in a position to follow that kind of policy, disruptive internment? Well, we were this week, I think the uh, the Justice Minister announced a war chest of five million, which I just don't think that's very much. Maybe it'll cover the overtime that's needed. Um, it is all to do with money. It's all to do with putting together a plan for the moment, which is a reactionary policing plan. That's what we're seeing at the moment because they're on the back foot. Because we have done policing on the cheap for the last 10 years, we're seeing the results of that, which is a lack of intelligence. So they're coming at this kind of, um, you know, they're a step behind them. So we've reactionary policing on the ground and then we need to formulate a plan going forward so we can somehow um, police organised crime as best we can in this country and while working with our, our European counterparts. And that plan has to be a long term one and it has to literally look at all ways that you can literally cut this off at the legs because when you have a crime gang, when they hit Spain and they reach a certain level, they're nearly out of reach. Um, you know, they've set up legitimate businesses and and they can use the law. Uh, it's almost on their side. Um, so you need to try and, and stop it as much as you can at, at grassroots level on the streets with the young kids now and I mean, while we're looking at the, the Kinnahan cartel now and what they're capable of, there's actually a, a younger group coming up behind them already. And, um, you know, they're, they're teenagers, they're in their late teens and they're already displaying wealth and feel that they uh, have a right to do so on Facebook. And you're talking Rolex watches and, you know, 100 pair of pairs of 400 euro runners and all this sort of stuff and they're out in the streets playing with the other kids and playing football with them and they're they're showing that and they're going to be even worse than what, what we're dealing with at the moment. Um, just explain as well that Spanish connection and how it makes Dublin slightly different or probably fundamentally different really from the Limerick scenario. Well, if I'm right, Sean, I don't think the Dundons really ever left Limerick Bar to go on holidays in, in no. Turkey and a few places like that. Is yeah, that? But there was one, something very similar to the way they directed operations. They directed a lot of their murders from the inside of a prison cell. Mm-hmm. And they have travelled abroad to other parts of Europe and they've also done something similar. So that's a similar trait to the people that's doing it in Dublin at the moment. But, Nicola, do you mind if I just kind of finish what Sarah asked initially? Sure, go on. Yeah, do you mind? I have to give credit to Dermot Ahern because in fairness to Dermot Ahern at the time, he was the Minister for Justice, he came down to Limerick, he met the senior officers and he asked them exactly what they needed to combat the organised criminal behaviour and the murders that were taking place in Limerick. And he drafted a new law making an offence to direct or participate in a criminal gang. We had a huge problem here with witness and juror intimidation. So he set up a special criminal court. He also um, gave us legislation where we can use covert surveillance and we can produce the same in court. And specialist units in Dublin, and he, and he gave this commitment and it worked. 
we had all the National Support Service of Dublin. They came down and gave us great assistance. And we learned an awful lot from them. And, and they, that was key. And I feel that the organised gangs, and I know drugs, drugs is just one, one part of it, but, you see, organised crime, the way it's gone now, and that's all down to the fact that the government has never taken it seriously. Like, it's now more profit, profitable than ever before because it hasn't been tackled. It's more adaptable and it's moving countryside and it's moving all over Europe. It's dynamic because it's wide-reaching and it's moving, it's more fluid. And that's because there's lack of experience, lack of knowledge, and the lack of resources to deal with it. And, you know, and I have to blame the government, and, and, and I have to put on my political cap here. You know, five years of not giving the guard to Shikana what they required. I thought they were just totally treated with utter disrespect. Sean, would All you... they ever wanted was their pay and their conditions, similar to the thousand they restored. And if you don't get the morale in the Galaxy corner back up to where it is, because I know what the lads at, at the moment are dealing with up in Dublin. They're fighting a battle. In fairness to them, there's great work done. And when I heard Chief Superintendent uh, Pat Leahy on the TV recently, do you know something? I sat back and I said, that man knows what he's doing. That man, he gave a commitment. He was confident that he would solve these murders. And you know something? He was like the man inside in the dressing room before he go to play the match. He oozed with confidence, and I think the players underneath him will do will do it for him. Ivana, um, the law. There is a sense uh, that sometimes criminals can use the law to actually escape justice. So they get legal aid. You know, they keep getting out on bail. All of that kind of stuff. Mm. Do you think the law is sufficient to combat the problem? Um, well, I'm very interested to hear Sean speak about his experience in Limerick. And I mean, you know, I think all of us would look to how the guards managed that situation in Limerick and overcame enormous challenges there in terms of organised crime and feuding. Similar, you know, obviously there are differences. And I hear what Nicholas is saying, but, you know, similar in the sense of a small, a relatively small group of people. Uh, whom the Guardi targeted in this uh, very intensive policing fashion that Sean has described, using all the legislation available to them, including the road traffic legislation, the Control of Horses Act, Misuse of Drugs Act and so on. And I think, as Sean says, the legislation is there, the law is there. And certainly since the changes to the law, Sean also mentioned the 2009 Act and the new offences around organised crime that were brought in, the new procedural um, changes on surveillance and so forth. So I think the law is there. I think it is a question of law enforcement. And, you know, looking at the very serious situation in North Inner City Dublin at the moment, I suppose the first thing to say is, of course, it is a very small group of people. The vast majority of people in that great community in North Inner City Dublin, which I know well, which many listeners will know well, the vast majority of people are entirely law abiding. It's a great community. So it's, you know, it's just a small group of people involved in this very, very nasty and, and bloodthirsty feud but I suppose there's two you know there's a two-pronged approach is needed and I think that's been recognised by many of the people who've talked about it uh, and by anyone working in frontline I should say I worked in frontline criminal justice system as a barrister for many years uh, both in the special criminal court and the ordinary criminal courts so I think the two-pronged approach is the short-term approach of the saturation policing of using all of those criminal justice mechanisms available to the Guardi we all recall the old chestnut about Al Capone being caught on tax mm. evasion that's the way you bring in people but you also so that's the short term approach that we saw working so effectively in Limerick. Francis Fitzgerald, the minister, announced this week the war chest Nicola described which will clearly be directed towards that short term resourcing of the policing that's needed to bring to bring the individuals involved
involved in the feud to justice and to protect those at risk, clearly, uh, who are still at risk out there. Uh, but I think there's also the long-term measures, which again have to be uh, resourced sufficiently, of course, um, but which involve much more than just the Gardaí. We're talking here about resourcing community projects like the Young Ballymun project that's been so successful in another disadvantaged part of Dublin, uh, like the, the JLOs, the Juvenile Liaison Officers and the Guards. They do tremendous work and the community policing. I was speaking this week with a community a local community officer in our area, community guard, they do incredible work yeah. on the ground in building up trust in communities. Sean mentioned a very important thing, witness intimidation, people's fear of coming forward. I listened to Chief Superintendent Pat Leahy who spoke so eloquently about the need for people to come forward to give the guards the information they need. They can do it anonymously, they don't have to identify themselves, but it's so important that people would cooperate with the guardie and bring forward. The problem for lots of people is fear and in Limerick we saw some really brave people who were very closely involved with those up in charge whose evidence helped hugely in terms of bringing people to justice, convicting people in Limerick. There's clearly an international dimension too in Europol and uh, the links that the Guardi have with, with police, not just in Spain, but obviously in, in Netherlands and Amsterdam and so on. That also has to, you know, that has to happen One too. Thing, and I, the work that CAB do. So there's a huge amount of different things involved, but I think it's both a short term to try and just ensure we see an end to this bloody feud, this horrible bloodthirsty feud, but also the long term measures to try and build up trust in the community, tackle the root causes of crime and disadvantage. Now, I'm bringing in Jared in one second, but I just want to ask you about one perhaps gap in the law that has been highlighted, which is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, that we don't have conspiracy as part of the law and that that's what the guys in charge in Spain could be got on is conspiracy. So would you support that? No, we do. We have now a statutory offence of conspiracy, but we also also have a very old common law, in other words, not in statute, but just a a judge-made law on conspiracy, which in fact, of course, just this week, we saw at a very different level of crime, albeit, you know, it's white-collar crime, but we saw people convicted in the Irish courts this week of conspiracy to defraud. So I think it shows, this is in in terms of banking Mm. charges, clearly, I'm talking about, uh, but the, you know, that shows that, yes, we do have conspiracy law, both in common law and now in statute as well. So those charges are also available to Gardaí. We do have the very specific ones, Sean mentioned, directing the uh, organ- uh, criminal organisations and so on, but we also have older conspiracy law as well. Now, and and judges, are, <laughs> judges are at liberty to sentence on a, on a common law offence of conspiracy. Um, so, Jared, you know, uh, Ivana talked there eloquently about deprivation, you know, and how important it is to build up communities in these areas. But in Owen Harris's column, he was making the point, you know, the left is fond of blaming poverty and blaming deprivation for crime. But do we need to accept that evil can exist? Without deprivation. Yes, of course. Yes. Um, I, if you look, I mean, all you have to do is do a little bit of historical research and you will see clearly that at times when poverty, and by poverty I mean here absolute poverty, I mean not enough food, not enough shelter and so on, was endemic as it would have been, for example, in England in the 1930s, 40s and 50s and more or less here as well. Crime levels were actually quite low. And you can have high crime levels when you have at best, relative poverty, which means people not having as much as anybody else, but in fact having plenty to eat and drink and so on. So there's no uh, necessary correlation and there's no causal connection either. For the most part, what you're talking about is the old desire of people to have things in the easiest way possible. And the easiest way possible is, in the words of the television thing, only fools and horses work. Okay, so let some other idiot work and you take the proceeds on it. So criminality has always been an option. It's always been a way of making a living. And there will always be people who will choose to do that. This is more common, however, I think, when, if you like, the social norms, what I call the transition from stage two to stage three, from using other people for your own benefit, which we all do, of course, in an innocent way, 
<laughs> and where, where you don't make the leap to understanding how people need to be treated in terms of their own good. Okay, And this is something which doesn't come naturally to human beings. It's something which requires socialization and training. And the primary source for this, in fact, is the family. Okay, So when you have family breakdown and so on, you tend to get, if you like, a loss of that. And I'm not blaming individuals for this. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a widespread uh, social factor and it's fairly well known. Uh, of course, there are triumphant people and other people in those circumstances who go well beyond that. And there are heroic individuals who succeed and so on. But... Generally speaking, you, you do tend to get more of that when you get that kind of social breakdown. And that may or may not be related to poverty, but it's, it's there's no necessary. So question. would you accept, though, that a long term strategy of combating deprivation and perhaps social isolation really in those areas is a key part of solving the crime. Well, it is a part, but it's not it's not the largest part. I mean, look, we 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 know Ivana mentioned uh, Al Capone. We know that one of the principal generators of gangs is prohibition. Hmm. Right? So the what we have what we're what we're talking about this morning is firefighting. It's emergency reaction to a situation which has developed, which has been there for a while, which didn't bother most people most of the time and now we're all it's the kind of panic du jour. Okay, I, I imagine in about a month's time that will practically have disappeared. But the, the underlying cause of all of this, of course, is the prohibition of drugs. Right now, if you if you if you criminalize uh, goods that people desire, okay, and will continue to desire, and about which they feel nothing, no moral compunction about using for themselves or selling to others, then all you're doing when you criminalize it is you raise the transaction costs. You also make it impossible for people to deal in this in a way which allows them legally to sort out their differences, and that results in violence. We saw that in prohibition, right? Who in the United States did not want prohibition repealed? Uh, the gangs, I yes, guess, the exactly. mafia. Yeah. Exactly. That's precisely the point. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, so the if you really want to get at the root, I'm not talking about the short-term things we've been talking about, because I agree, by and large, with most of that. Long-term, just decriminalize the whole thing. We society. By the way, people say, oh my God, oh no, no, people would be drunken on drugs and out of their minds all the time. And the answer is, no, they wouldn't. Why would they not? Because we already had the situation. The criminalization of drugs is a relatively recent historical event. In the 19th century and even in the early 20th century, none of these things were criminalized. Right? Now, I'm not saying, by the way, I want to make it absolutely clear. Mm. I'm a drug user. Yeah, I drink tea. <laughs> yeah, tea is a drug. Coffee is a drug. Drink is a drug. And by the way, if your objection to drug use is that it leads to social breakdown and all of the rest, I would ask you to seriously consider and ask yourself, which drug causes most damage in Ireland? And it is alcohol, Mm. responsible for at least 256 deaths on the road, which is a whole lot more than we have seen in our gang wars. And we don't criminalise that. Right. Yeah, I'm going. I'm going to take a break. I just want to come back very quickly to Sean on that because, as well as being involved in the police, you're a politician too. Would you support simply decriminalising drugs? Not at the moment. I, I'm, I'm a firm believer in the zero. No, I, I agree with that gentleman and everything he's saying. But we need be, we need debate. We need education first and foremost, I and mean, that needs longer periods of debate in relation to that. Because imagine uh, that you're child, ma'am, can I have 20 euros to buy a bag a bag of weed, you know? That's what you may have. So you need education. So, uh, Sean Lynch, former detective, Fianna Fáil County Councillor and Deputy Mayor for Limerick City. Thanks for that. I'm also talking to Jerg Casey, Ivana Bacic and Nicola Talent. And we'll be back after the break and we'll be asking, does the middle class tolerate this crime because it's only hurting the poor? 
Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. Okay, so welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about drug crime this morning and how we might solve it. And in studio, Nicola Talent is the Investigations Editor with The Sunday World. Ivana Bacic is a Labour Party Senator and Professor in Criminal Law at Trinity College. And Jared Casey is Professor Emeritus in Philosophy in UCD. Um, Nicola, before the break there, um, Jared had raised the point about that the real solution to this is just to decriminalise drugs. If, you, if drugs were legal, this would disappear overnight. But it's just not politically acceptable. But maybe we need to get over that. Well, if you were to even consider doing that, I think you'd have to do it worldwide for a start. Secondly, you have the likes of cigarettes, which are legal, but there's still a huge black market in cigarettes. Absolutely massive profits to be made in it and huge organised criminals still running it. Um, Similar with alcohol. Um, You know, you have to, just because people take something or do something doesn't mean we have to legalise it. Um, You know, you'd have the same argument with weapons and, and, and other such things. So, I mean, I don't go with that at all. I don't think there's any question that we can legalise drugs in this country and that that'll stop the crime element that has built up around it. Yeah, but do you not accept that it must make it easier. Like if, if its illegality is the reason why the trade in it is so important, it's bound to make it easier. Now, I know it's not politically acceptable, but even if you look at it from the global scale and you're right, it would have to be done globally. Drugs has destroyed Colombia, absolutely destroyed that country. You know, and if there was no war on drugs, maybe mm-hmm. they'd be better off. And the Americans have for years lost the war on drugs and it's yeah, always the, been the, the a... Jared Casey. Right? I mean, yeah. half the people in jail in the United States are there on drug offences. I mean, it's staggering. And it, 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 it actually corrupts police forces and law enforcement officers and so on. It's nonsense. Uh, we, but the point is, it is becoming politically acceptable. We're seeing it in a small way in places like Colorado. We mm-hmm. see it, of course, in the Netherlands. We see it to some extent in Portugal, but people are beginning to see sense. I'm not saying it would happen overnight. And by the way, I take Nicola's point about the about tobacco. But the, the reason for that, by the way, of course, is the massive tax, right? That's another government intervention. Mm-hmm. If you tax something to make it, as they, we do, by the way, you'll remember James I, of blessed memory, is the one who brought in the tax on tobacco. Why? Because he disapproved of smoking. That had a spectacular effect, right? Smoking is eliminated. No, no, no. <laughs> We're still doing it. And it brings in an enormous mm-hmm. revenue to the government. That's what it does, right? That's why it would be bad for the government actually to get rid of smokers. Ivana, what do you think? You know, personally, I've always thought we should move away from the prohibition model. I would absolutely agree with Jared in terms of the craziness of the war on drugs. Anyone who's familiar with the US criminal justice system will be conscious of just how badly that has affected so many communities. We see large numbers of young, Mm. disadvantaged, often African-American men imprisoned for drugs offences that are, you know, that do Mm. absolutely nobody any good in society in terms of uh, in terms of trying to ensure a better society for all. So, you know, I would agree with that. I think the difficulty is the international context. I think is quite right that you couldn't that it's certainly moving to a different model of, of uh, drug regulation in Ireland would be very difficult given the sense given the fact that uh, that wouldn't that isn't the model that's used elsewhere however I think there are ways one can mo- one can bring about change and on the Oireachtas Justice Committee last year in which I'm a member we looked at the Portuguese law on drugs which has moved towards a medical rather than a legal model where people are using cannabis for themselves in other words where they're in possession of a small quantity of cannabis that has been de- criminalised and we recommended that a similar approach be taken in Ireland. In fact there is a different sentencing uh, mechanism in place for cannabis possession compared to other types of drugs in Ireland under our Misuse of Drugs Act so there is some recognition of different variants of harm and so on uh, and and I suppose you know we've seen it also in England and London police have moved away from the criminal justice model where again people are in possession of small amounts of cannabis. The argument is that you're moving towards a different model of 
regulation of drugs that you're recognising that this isn't a that this isn't a huge issue that should be wasting police time where people are in possession of cannabis for their own use and uh, and it frees up police resources for mm. more serious criminal activity. So right. I think there's an important model. There. It does also. I mean, the other point, you know, to link it with the organised crime issue and and gangs and so on. Clearly, you know. A, if one were to move towards a different model and away from prohibition, that would certainly disrupt the markets and the opportunities there for criminal gangs. But there is the difficulty that it's still internationally but is it, is it one of those things that actually uh, people, people in politics probably know it is the right solution, but they feel it's not acceptable to the public? So it's just going to be one of those things that we'll end up doing in 50 years and wonder why we never did it anyway. In other words, <laughs> is there actually more political leadership required? I think so. I think there is some political momentum. I mean, you know, mm. others have described, as I said, Portugal, uh, Colorado. In fact, quite a number of US states mm. now have moved to that medical model uh, where it's 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 legal to possess a small amount of cannabis for your own use. And indeed, in Colorado, we see, you know, shops being set up and clinics and so on. It's carefully regulated. And I mean, you know, that's very important. I think, you know, in Ireland, we've had very bad experience with the, uh, uh, people may remember the head shops that were briefly legal mm. and sort of, and, and gave rise to all sorts of concerns about uh, harm caused uh, young people, very young people involved and buying stuff. I suppose, you know, you need to regulate it. That's the important lesson we learned from alcohol, which obviously mm. is the most dangerous drug, uh, drug that causes the most harm, I should say, in Ireland. But people in communities see also the damage done uh, with heroin, you know, to, to individuals who become addicted to heroin. So, this, you know, it's a difficult argument to make, I think, the argument against prohibition, particularly in communities which see huge levels of harm caused by heroin addiction. So I think we need to, but, you know, again, there's a different way of dealing with heroin addiction, which is through um, treating it a as health, a medical condition. Yeah. Exactly, that this is a health issue. That if you deal with it, and Minister Aon O'Riordan, the former mm. minister, I think was very enlightened in talking about the need to move away again from the criminal justice and prohibition and the war on drugs and all of that ineffective mechanism for dealing with this. And, to try and did and move he get stick for that? Mind. I remember he him he got saying stick it. For it. But at the, a lot of people, I think, also recognised the merit of what he was saying. And you see people again working the front line with those who are addicted, uh, maybe like merchants key and so on, arguing for, for example, the establishment of injecting rooms for the ar- argument, arguing for a more medical approach to see this as a health issue where people are addicted to heroin, rather than simply locking them up, which really doesn't solve anything, certainly doesn't resolve their addiction. Nicola, is the fundamental problem here that there is no political will because politics is run by the middle class and the middle class don't care because this is a poor person's problem? There's an element of that and I think there's a fear we just stand up and be counted now in politics because somebody has to, you know, I don't think throwing five million at this problem without actually getting down to the nitty gritty of what's wrong. For example, our CHIS system, which is the uh, system for handling informants, was changed after the Morris Tribunal. Unchallenged, it came in um, to the to the guards and you speak to any guard and they will tell you it's just not working. And it why? Is not working. How is it supposed to work? And why well, it's, is it, not it, it, it basically was to regulate the sort of that dark world of informants and, and touting and all the rest of it, which needs to be somewhat regulated, but not as strongly as it currently is. At the moment, if you have if an informant, you have to hand them over to a central system where their names have to be taken and kept on a computer system and their information. Now, you know, that just is absolutely unworkable. Um, at the same time, you can't have a situation like what happened in Donegal as well. You just need a middle ground there And somewhere. what happened in Donegal? Remind people. Well, the McBrowerty uh, case where the informants and a small number of guards and informants uh, basically completely misused their, their relationship and uh, tried to frame somebody, you know, so... And it, uh, you know, I mean, that nobody w- would would say that, that you know, 
we should allow that happen again. It mm. needs to be somewhat regulated. But the current system is just absolutely outrageous how bad it is. Yeah, but there, there Jared are, Casey. There are, okay, I mean, I agree again with a lot of that. I mean, by the way, I, I expect in a quite a short time, m- many of these drugs will in fact be legalised and the government will be taxing them and enjoying the revenue. Um, but there are civil liberty issues. Okay, so we see, for example, you know, a thousand checkpoints. Well, that actually means the guard set up a checkpoint and then move to 200 yards down the road and then move to 200 yards and that counts as three. Okay, this is all optics, okay? And to the extent that it works, it tends to do, as screening it at airports does, disrupt people who are actually not committing any crime or not committing any offence and mess up with their lives. The, the recent move by the Minister for Justice to move the th- threshold for CAB down to €1,000 is extremely worrying. Okay, It's part of the attack on cash, for example, which is coming our way, by the way, and so that all of your dealings will now be and so on. As a civil libertarian, I love cash. Yeah, I like okay? cash. I want cash. I want to be able to de- If I want to be able to buy comics and so on, the Divino and the Dandy, I want to be able to do that without doing it on my credit card. Yeah. right? And if I want to carry around €2,000 in my pocket, I want to do it without having what you have, by the way, in America, civil Asset seizure, where if you're driving along in a car, okay, and they stop you and they find you carrying, say, 2,000, they can confiscate that. You have to get it back, right? <laughs> and it can take years and, and, and sometimes it never works. They just, they basically, it's high, literally highway robbery, okay? <laughs> so there are all of these issues we have to think about as well. So we're engaged in this firefighting. Okay, suddenly it's become, as I said, you know, the, the thing, the, we, we have this sort of panic. You have to ask yourself, how many. Let's assume that we know, by the way, that people in the gangs are not innocent. How many innocent people actually have been killed in this? How many people, innocent people have actually been disrupted? And the answer is not that many. Certainly not as many as uh, 200. Well, certainly no, not as many as no. the 256 people who died on our road. I mean, you want to count numbers? You want to count heads? You want to count bodies on the ground? I think that becomes very, I must say, distasteful though when you think but of each individual. But Ivana, that is what I meet so many people. And what they say when there's been another killing is they're not saying... Oh my God, it's terrible. The government should do something. They're saying, grand, that's another one down that we don't have to keep in prison. So what? Well, certainly that's not what people are saying who are living in the areas. Well, that's the point that I'm making. Are, and, and that's exactly that's the not, point. But Sarah, I mean, nor, people yeah. talk about... By North the way, Venice, it's not I, what I said. Oh, yeah, sorry. No, 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 no it's a different talk, thing. No, 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 no about... But, yeah, sorry. Making, yes, yes. Sarah's yeah. making a bigger point. <laughs> yeah. But can I just say this, that North yeah. inner city Dublin is not this sort of monolithic place that every, where everybody lives in, in poverty. Uh, poverty. I think some of the commentary about it is, again, quite misleading. It's a very mixed community and there's an awful lot of people there who are who are middle class, who are working class, who are you know, who are new communities and so on. And, you know, everyone there is fearful that they may be caught in crossfire, as we've seen quite a mm. number of but people But do you acknowledge that? And in Limerick too, we might recall that mm. dreadful yeah. shooting of, uh, I think, right. Shane Gagan, That's who right. was, yeah. again, a ver- very much just mistaken identity. So we've had a number of those. So mm. I think, you know, I, I don't think people should say, oh, it's just happening in one community and we can dismiss But that's them. what they do say. Yeah, no, I, and I know there's been some commentary. I think you're right there about yeah. that. There's been some commentary about it. Uh, you know, but I would say this, that, you know, that I think this latest um, round or this latest series of, of shootings and, and awful killings has actually focused attention in a much broader way on it. And that people aren't now writing it off anymore as a sort of just a small group of people that it doesn't affect us. I think people do see it as affecting them. Now, there is always the danger of a moral panic. And we are well aware of that in criminology, you know, this idea yeah. that people become sort of disproportionately fearful. But I think there is a sense now that we need to take this very seriously and that we need to look at 
at you know effective measures, not just the short term, but also. What about say, Jared's point? About, but can I speak it, about one sort of success yeah. measure? And again, that's been actually um, you know researched by uh, criminology college, colleagues in UCD, you know Donald and others. They talk about the crime fall in Ireland in the mid after the mid nineties. Uh, there was a drop in crime, and I mean that was another period where we saw the murder of Veronica Gearin and Detective Guard Jerry McCabe, a real panic, the establishment of cab and so on. But a fall in crime, which Ian O'Donnell and others have looked at and researched, and partly, or in large part, attributable to the state's investment in a methadone supply programme. A lot of the low-level burglaries, the mm. people might remember those awful syringe muggings that became a mm. feature and so on. You know, the state invested in in provision of methadone uh, through the HSE, which still runs an extensive methadone provision programme, which stabilised a lot of people who had formerly been going out robbing to feed an addiction. And again, it's moving away from that legal prohibition mm. model towards a more medical model. It's <coughs> effective at tackling that low level. Certainly you need other measures and policing measures and so on at a higher level. And can I just say on the informers, a colleague in Trinity, you know, Owen O'Connor, has just done a thesis, a doctoral thesis I've read on in, on uh, informers. The CHIS system, which Nikola is critical of, I think is much better than what was before. And in fact, there's an argument for stronger regulation of informers. It's very, very difficult. It's very difficult. It's very hard to find a model that works anywhere because it is so difficult. It's such a big ask to ask well, somebody to inform. Nicola's shaking her head at that. I have to take a quick ad break and I will come back to that and the idea of the middle class not caring. Um, so I'm talking to Nicola Talent, Ivana Batchik and Jared Casey. They'll all be back after these. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. And welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about crime this morning and in studio, Nicola Talent is Investigations Editor for the Sunday World. Ivana Batchik is the Labour Party Senator and Professor in Criminal Law at Trinity College Dublin. And Jared Casey is Professor Emeritus at UCD in Philosophy. Nicola, I want to come back to this idea of that there is a lack of political will around solving this problem because, by and large, it does not affect the middle class and they just see um, these guys killing each other and they don't care. Yeah, there's an, it certainly is an element of that. I mean, you know, we've talked about cannabis and, and all the rest of it, but a lot of these drug wars are actually fueled by cocaine, which is a drug that is taken by the middle class. And you'll see people who take cocaine are, you know, Sure, that all all that happens. They don't really see the bigger picture um, until it hits the streets. And I think there was a few cases in the last uh, major feud, the Crumlin Drimna feud, where there was a number of murders in the Clontarf area, which um, astounded uh, and horrified uh, individuals in the area. Uh, you know, because it had come to their doorstep. Mm. But the fact of the matter is that some of the people that were horrified were people who were taking cocaine and they're the customers mm. they're the ones who are fueling my, this my, 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 exactly Jared my point this is exactly my point you know we need, we need to study the greatest uh, political theory manual of the 20th century which is the Godfather all right. right. Read the Godfather, right? And in the Godfather, when 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 Michael is having a discussion with one of the guys when there's been a bit of fuss the this guy kind of a sultan I think his name is says I'm a businessman blood costs money okay in other words, violence is a high cost. It, it breaks out again. My point is, when you have what we have here, you will get periodic, and they are periodic. Most of the time, the, these people can, simply cannot afford 
right, to engage in this kind of activity from their own point of view, let alone whatever damage you might be doing to anybody else all the time. So this is a kind of an efflorescence of violence that pops up in particular areas at particular times from time to time until but they will sort it out. But are you saying that sounds like an acceptable level of crime, which people said about Northern Ireland? No, no, I, you know. I, I come back to my main point. Mm. The whole, my, they, they wouldn't, they, most, most of this would be on my, by the way, I didn't say, as you said, uh, Kate and Nicola, that all of this would disappear. Mm. Okay, you will still have criminality and you would probably still have organised gangs as, and you would still have smuggling of cigarettes because of high taxes, but it would certainly reduce the level of criminality and Nicola, the level of violence. Do you want to get back in on that? Well, I mean, that's the, the, the point I was just making is that everybody takes drugs, but only certain communities see the real effects of organised crime. And those communities are usually the, the sort of more working class communities um, and places really where the, the drug barons have come out of. Um, now, what you have is, I mean, you're talking about handling this, looking at this from a medical point of view, from a, you know, bringing in funds for for disadvan- for groups working with disadvantaged kids and all that that is correct but going back to what we said initially the parenting of children i think is key to most of it because you know what you have in areas and you've seen it in limerick in dublin drug dealers operate essentially the same way as pedophiles do and they they will groom children from from kids that don't have parents coming out and kicking in their doors and telling them not to speak to their kids or not to get them. And they start with them, they, the vulnerable kids who are out on the street, who aren't being, going in home at nine o'clock at night, mm. who don't have anybody fighting for them. And they will get them to do a little job for them and it builds up and up and up mm. and up. And that's how they're recruiting on the streets. Now, that is a way of, you know, community groups keeping an eye for those vulnerable kids in the same way that some of us keep an eye for kids that could be abused. So Ivana, that comes to a question I asked at the top of the show. You know, when someone, when a man goes and shoots another man point blank in the head, was he born with the capacity to do that? But was, or was he trained into it by being groomed as a child? And do we all have the capacity to do that if we ended up in those circumstances? I think there is that sense that there is a capacity in all of us to, uh, depending on our upbringing, depending on the context into which we're born, our, you know, our life cha- chances and so on. And I mean, Nicola's very eloquently described the process whereby kids and and uh, adolescents are sort of groomed or, you know, attracted or seduced. People have talked about the seduction of crime. They're seduced into criminality by older gang members, by people involved in organised crime. It's appalling. And I must say the saddest aspect of working as a criminal barrister when I used to was in the children's court where I had Mm. clients, very young clients, in some cases clients whose parents didn't even turn up to court, but in some cases the parents did turn up and were devastated because they couldn't keep the child, some of them begging for the child to go into some sort of detention so that they could keep them away from the influence of these destructive peers. But Jared Casey, do you believe in free will? Yes. So if, if, if someone is living in that area, they do have the the opportunity and lots of them do to say no yes. to this. But of course, I mean, we are, our, our will is exercised in a, a number of large contexts and we come under various influences and, and various pressures. I made the point at the start of the show as well and I agree with Nick Landis. I, t- I talked about, if you like, the, I said that the, the, major, uh, the major influence on the moral formation of children is the family, and when you have dysfunctional families, then you ba- you have you have, if you like, eliminated perhaps the major factor. And again, everything I know, I learned from the movies and TV. You want to know something about this? What's the war? Okay, oh, yeah. for the first series, and look 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 at the social condition you have. Mm. You have a mass of young, mainly young men, hanging around. Mm. Where's the family? 
Mm-hmm. Right? Which well, is what are they doing? But again, it okay. does point to the need to resource family supports at a, at a very young at, at very young age. In, that the state, through community, through funding local communities, needs to resource people to have capacity to parent mm-hmm. properly, to mm-hmm. parent in a way that provides adequate supervision and so on. I mean, Sean Lynch spoke earlier about not only the policing strategies in Limerick, but also the regeneration of Limerick, which was a huge part in trying to tackle organised crime, trying to steer people or divert young people away from the gangs and the influence, the seductions of older older uh, children or older adolescents who might have tried to entice them into criminality to try and steer them towards education instead. And you, uh, there's some and, great and projects Ivana, being I've, run. I've to, I've to come to a close now. Do you believe the political will is in Dáil Éireann to solve those problems both in the short and long term? Yes, I think, in fact, given the new poli- new politics we're seeing now, yeah. the more fragmented politics, if you like, it's actually a good opportunity because there's been some very, very articulate voices in the Dáil and, uh, this week and I think in the Shannon next week when we start sitting that are, are, very, are really putting forward this more thoughtful, this more two-pronged approach, not just the short-term policing strategies and funding that you absolutely need, but also the more lo- long-term approach. So I think the political will is there and I think to say people are in- inherently evil absolves the state, lets the state off the hook. We need to move away from that sort of silly language of evil and so on and actually look at more seriously at the real interventions that do work. Okay, so Nicola Talent, Ivana Bacic and Jared Casey, many thanks for joining me this morning. That's it for today. Um, Aoife Breen produced. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy the rest of your bank holiday weekend. Thanks for listening to this Newstalk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.